Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick Green. Happy Saturday, my friend. Happy Saturday to you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I just got back from a hike. I'm uh, disgusting, but I'm showing up with the video off for live view purposes, which is unfortunate because our guest today is wearing a beautiful Nostromo crew member hat. We, yet again, have a terrific interview guest lined up this week, and the timing could not be better because his game that he's lead design of is dropping tomorrow i believe as we record this and by the time you're hearing this we'll have been out for a couple of days so hopefully you've been playing it and hopefully you've gone to a target or somewhere else to pick it up since then so you'll have some context for what we're talking about but spoilers are welcome today we are here with scott rogers lead game designer for the brand new ravensburger game alien fate of the nostromo scott welcome to perfect organism welcome uh, thank you guys it's great to be here so usually when we have people on the show for the first time, we like to take a little look back at the roots of their, you know, connection with Alien, if they have, you know, a relationship with it outside of whatever project they're working on. Was Alien something that was already kind of bouncing around in your life before this project or did this project bring you to it? <laughs> I am a big Alien fan. And now I love the whole franchise, but I am especially fond of the original film. I, I classify it as one of the few perfect movies ever made. You know, I, I'm sure that I am preaching to the choir here, but, you know, the cinematography is amazing. The music is amazing. The casting is perfect. The writing is spot on. The monster is incredible. You know, editing is amazing. Like everything in that film is perfect. I would I don't I cannot think of, other than maybe that one edit where Ash's head is being tilted into place. <laughs> I cannot think of a single thing I would want to change about that. But, you know, that was the technology of 1978 or, you know, when they shot the film and. And so I don't, but my own history with the, the film, uh, I, first of all, I watch it every year. I, I just adore the movie. So I'm a you know, big fan. I've read all the making of books, the the awesome Rinsler book and all the other ones. I own the Alien Quindo, uh, Quadrology, Quadrology, how do you pronounce that? Quadrology. Quadrology, <laughs> thank you. Yes, I've watched all those over and over again. And I have the action figures. And But most importantly, I have a really good origin story of my relationship with Alien.
All right. So in so when the film come, I I really wanted to see it. I I was a big you know very affected by Star Wars, like a lot of other kids. That you know when Star Wars came out, it was like a bombshell, and and so I wanted to see everything science fiction. And Alien was essentially the like the next big sci-fi movie, you know, after Star Wars, right? So my parents, but my parents are like, well, we hear this is a you know a thriller, right? They didn't even call it a. I don't even remember them calling it a horror movie back then. It was like a thriller back then. And so they were like, we're going to go see it, and then we'll let you know whether you can see it or not. So my mom and dad go see it, and they come back, and my mom says, I forbid you to see this movie. This movie is so horrifying and disgusting, and you're not allowed to see it. And I'm like, come on, mom, please. I really, you know, really, really, I'm like 10 years old, I think. And, you know, please, please, please. Nope, nope, nope. Mom would not let me go see Alien. I'm like, dang it. I want to, I got to find out about this movie. I'm fascinated by it. I've only seen the the trailers and you know i've seen the big 12 inch action figure in the stores and that's you know that's enough for me to want to go see this but fortunately on my route to school there was a dairy and the dairy would sell not you know not just milk and juice and things like that but it would sell like bubblegum cards and tops had come out with a set of bubblegum cards based on alien so i spent for like the next two months or so i spent pretty much most of my lunch money on those bubblegum cards just bought just bought them out like every you know i but literally i didn't like think to buy the whole thing at once i didn't you know that didn't seem fair so like every day i would stop by the dairy and i think i'll buy a couple more cards you know packs of cards so essentially i ended up probably buying the whole thing anyway but but that's how i learned about the story of the film was i pieced it together bubblegum card by bubblegum card in order to find out what the movie was about now, I'm sure you guys are familiar with these cards and you know that on the back of them, it's a PG version of the film, right? There's very little mention of the chestburster. There's, you know, no details about how any of the crew member die. They just kind of say they get killed and that's it. So I knew the whole movie, but I didn't know kind of the big shocks and scares of the film. And it wasn't until about a year later, I was at a we were at like a New Year's party that some friends of my parents were having. And my father worked in television. So a lot of the people he associated with were like early cable adapters. So this was, you know, again, 19, probably like 78 or nine, I guess, probably 79. And it was the Saturn Awards was on cable. And so us kids were in the like the bedroom watching the Saturn Awards. And I don't know how the heck they managed. I guess it was the early days of cable. So it was the Wild West. But they showed the entire chestburster sequence in the film as part of the Saturn Awards. And <laughs> when I saw it, I just laughed. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And, and I just loved it. And I was like, all right, I've got to. So eventually, I think maybe a year or two later, I saw it on VHS. And then finally, I, when I was in college, I, was in a, I went to film school. And I was in a really great uh, class that would show 70 millimeter films down in Hollywood. And so one of the films that they showed was Alien. And so I finally got to see when I saw it on film in a theater, it was in 70, 70 millimeter. It's the best way. to, And I've, I've tried to catch it every time it has a theatrical release. I try to catch it uh, whenever I can. Did you catch the Fathom Events 40th anniversary release a couple years ago? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. 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 That was the director cut one or was that the different one? That was the theatrical. theatrical. Yeah, the theatrical. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I, I think I've seen it in the theater now maybe a half dozen times, but I've seen it on, you know, DVD at least once a year. So it has to be close to 40, 50, maybe 40, 50 times I've seen the film. 
It's awesome. Not as many as that. I've seen Star Wars, but but still pretty close. That's great. You know, the the story that you're outlining in those tops trading cards is the same story that if you'd gotten the movie viewer, which also came out. I don't know, I don't know if you've uh, ever right, seen this. Yeah. It's one of my favorite collectibles. It's Kenner manufactured. It was plastic. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it was like a and it, I think it was the same sequence, the same story sequence, which is like kind of Star Warsizing the story a little bit. Like you get a lot of shots of like the planetoid and a lot of shots of the Nostromo and yep. not very many shots of blood, but shots of like people not being in the story anymore. You know, it's 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 sort of it clearly is trying to make it sort of okay for kids to be to be watching it. But it's funny, you know, right. now, you know, my kids know the movie well and watch it and they're fine with it too. I, I think maybe part of it was at the time sensitivities were a little different, but I, I can see why your parents were afraid of you seeing it in theaters, you know? Yeah. I mean, my, my mom, she was just kind of grossed out by it. And then they went to get pizza afterwards. And she was like, I couldn't even eat the pizza. It, was, <laughs> it reminded me too much of the guy bursting apart. <laughs> That's awesome. So I want to move into your background a little bit. So you do you wear many hats. I read up your, on your biography on some tabletop websites. Can you can you take us through your career a little bit and how game design, specifically board game or tabletop game design, fits into it? Well, I've I've always grown up playing board games. My first gaming experiences were board games. Like I said, I, I grew up in the '70s, and so games at that time were very toyetic. So I grew up playing games like Voice of the Mummy or Barnabas Collins or Green Ghost, which were these, you know, kind of horror themed, you know, in the 70s, there was kind of this big resurgence of horror, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein. And a lot of the old universal shows would get shown on television and, and things like that. But there was also a lot of pop culture, you know, surrounding monsters. And so I, I ate all that up. I, I was, you know, comic books and, and movies and, you know, toys, those were all, and games, those were all the things that I gravitated towards. And so I, I grew up playing these, you know, these children's games. They're very simple games, but they have really lovely components. You know, the voice of the mummy has a little uh, record player inside of it that utters curses at you as you kind of collect gems. And, and the green ghosts like glow, glowed in the dark. One of my earliest childhood memories is sitting in a darkened garage playing this glow phosphorescent glowing green board game. And so, you know, when you, you know, as a kid, as you play a lot of games, you start to make games. And so I would, you know, like any other kid, I would draw, you know, a kind of Candyland-esque roll and move type games. And they were themed to different things. And then in the late 70s, I found Dungeons and Dragons. And that really, for me, that was a big bombshell moment because not only was this very it was a very different type of game than the other games we had played you know it's this role-playing interactive aspect to it but you could also it it the game encouraged you to make your own content and so this is i was the guy who owned the books and the dice and the miniatures so i was the guy making the dungeons and so i would you know rally my friends together and i'd create you know after we played some of the modules i started making my own stuff and that really is what started my career as a game designer was this notion of I've got to make something that is playable, that is entertaining, that is fair, that is fun. And and I know a lot of other game designers my age that attribute Dungeons and Dragons to the their career in game design. But of course, 
also at this time, computers of our, you know, personal computers are becoming popular. And so us young nerds are taking our desires to play Dungeons and Dragons. And, and a lot of this is driven by, we might not have a big group of friends to play with. So our new friend is going to be the computer. And so we will program our games into, you know, into the computer. And then that way we can play them, you know, if, even if there aren't any other friends around. But I didn't I, I didn't grow up with the computer until the 80s. I We didn't have a home computer until we got a Macintosh. But I learned um, a little bit of programming in high school and I would make games in class. The teacher was real good about encouraging me to be creative and, and make things. And, uh, and so kind of between that nascent education in computers and uh, Dungeons and Dragons, that kind of started me on, you know, experimenting with games, designing games, creating games, things like that, playing games. And of course, arcades were huge back then as well. So I played a lot of arcade games. But when I got to college, I, I had never really considered game creation as a career. It was it didn't occur to me that like like people made these things. And so I went off to school to I studied art and I studied film. And that's that's what I thought I would do going into college. I, I originally thought I would be doing comic books. I grew up in San Diego and I went to Comic-Con every year and I knew like I met and knew you know, a lot of the big name artists of the day, the Jack Kirby's and the Carl Barks and the John Romita's and guys like that, they would take time with me. And I was a, a young kid with a handful of drawings and they would sit down and then they would tell me all these horror stories about how terrible it was to work in the comic book industry and how they were getting ripped off and how, you know, Stan Lee was getting all the credit and they were, you know, just having to sell their their drawings over again to make some money. So they kind of scared me off from the comic book industry. But about that time, you know, is when Star Wars came out and I had picked up or I, I got for Christmas the art of Star Wars, which had storyboards in it. And I'm like, oh, this is just like comic books. But the film industry people seem to be making more money at it than comic book people are. So maybe I'll do that. So I, I thought I would work in special effects or storyboarding. And then I, when I was going to school, I got bit by the screenwriting bug and so wrote screenplays. And I even interned at 20th Century Fox and with a, with a agent who, you know, handled writers. And so I got a lot of exposure to what that world was like. And I, and I honestly thought I was going to do that when I graduated was work in some capacity for the film industry. And what changed that for you? A, uh, a hurricane. I was lying. So my father used to teach at the University of San Diego. I forget which one it is, UC or state. He might have done both. But one of his students was Kathleen Kennedy. And she became you know pretty prominent even back in those days at, at Amblin with Steven Spielberg. And so my dad managed to get me a interview for an internship at Amblin. Oh, and wow. uh, and I was supposedly up for, you know, this internship. I think, you know, there was probably a good chance I would have gotten it. And and then the hurricane that wiped out the sets of Jurassic Park came along. And That's I was right. told that all the money that was going to be used to hire the interns was going to be used to rebuild the sets instead. And so it, it took an act of God to keep me out of the film industry. <laughs> um, so as a result, I kind of ended up falling backwards into video games where a friend of mine, I was unemployed. I was in a coffee shop in Long Beach where I'd gone to school and he came up to me and said, Hey, you know how to draw, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, you know how to draw on a computer? And I'm like, well, yeah, kind of. I've used the Mac and, and all that. He says, well, I have this company that I work for and we're looking for artists and animators. Why don't you apply? And I said, well, I, I don't, 
you know, I don't know these programs that you guys are talking about. And he said, well, why don't you spend a couple of weeks, come to my house, you can teach yourself the programs, and then you can come in and interview. I'm like, that's great. I'm unemployed. So that's a very generous offer. And I, I did that. And I went in with my, my reel or samples of artwork. And they looked at them and they said, you know, this is great. We, we love it. You seem like a really nice guy. But unfortunately, the position uh, we were hiring for, we've already filled. And so, you know, sorry, we don't have a job for you, but, you know, good luck. And I was like, well, good luck to you guys, too. You know, you guys seem to be making some very cool games. And, I, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll do well. And uh, that company was called, at the time, Silicon and Synapse. Are you guys familiar with the, that company? Did it become Activision by any chance? Oh, close. It <laughs> no. actually became Blizzard. Blizzard oh, it was yeah. Blizzard. Okay. Oh, and, Activision and, Blizzard. Right. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, the, uh, and the game that, they, that I saw them working on was Warcraft. And if wow. I had been hired by them, I would have been like the 16th employee of that company. Oh, my wow. God. But it didn't work out. But I, but I ended up in video games. Anyway, I worked for a bunch of different companies. Eventually, I was working for, I worked for Capcom and Namco and, and Sony and then the publisher THQ. And so I, I ended up making AAA video games for about 25 years and got to travel around the world and work with all types of really talented people. And, and one year, I gave a talk at a, at a game developers conference about another passion of mine, which is Disneyland. And, uh, and I talked about game design in Disneyland and I got essentially Imagineers were in the audience and they said, we need a guy like you working for us. And so I worked for almost five years at Disney Imagineering, but then they uh, decided that they didn't want games in the park at the time. Although a lot of the early things I worked on were things that eventually are in the park, things like the Disney Play app and uh, some of the experiences you do at like Galaxy's Edge and whatnot. But then I taught, I've been teaching in the interim. So I, uh, I uh, teach at a place called the New York Film Academy and I occasionally teach at USC. And what else? Oh, and then I, I still make board games. And so I've been more recently kind of doubling down on the board games. And I, in 2015, I was like, uh, no, I was 16. I would really want to like, you know, have this game that I had designed. Originally, it was a video game, but I said, oh, it might make for a good board game. And so I went to a, there's a big show called Gen Con every year in, in Indianapolis. And I went there and sold that game. And then I sold another game the next year. And then I ended up making friends with people at Ravensburger, which led to me working on the Alien game. That's a journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. In terms of the Alien game in particular, how did that come about? Did, when, when you you said you met people at Ravensburger, were, was this right. something that was already on the table? Did they already have the license kicking around, or is this something that was sort of a passion project? No, I, I mean, so Ravensburger is a, a very old and very big uh, publisher of board games. They've been around since the 1880s. They're, you know, it's fair to say they're kind of like the Sony or the Nintendo or the Sega of board games, right? They're one of the big publishers that, you know, have... Have you know their their reach is global and they have a lot of ties to IP holders like Disney and etc. And so so I made like I said I made friends with the fellow who runs the their American creative division and he put me on a list of designers that he reaches out to for you know he essentially what they do is they get the IP and they say all right we we need a game to go with this you know we we've got the rights to do Alien. We need a game. And so they send out a, kind of an all call to this to this group of game designers and they say, here are the different licenses we have. Go ahead and pitch, you know, your best idea you have till, you know, whatever this month. 
And so when I got the the all call with Alien, I'm like, oh my gosh, Alien is like a dream IP. I, I would love to make an Alien game. So I actually pitched two games to them. I pitched one that was very much uh, following the narrative of the film. They had just published a Jaws game that was also kind of did the same thing. Which so I'm like, well, I adore. I want to give a quick shout out because that's my wife and my favorite board game. And we play that all the time. And that's also yeah, by Ravensburger. And it's also yeah. only twenty nine ninety nine. And pick it up if people don't have that. It's a great game. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really great. I, I really like it a lot. And at first I was like, well, do they just want alien, you know, the alien version of Jaws? But I was like, well, I, I, I really like myself. I like miniatures and I like moving miniatures around in a map and making you feel like you're in a place. So, you know, I wanted to make sure that those components were represented in the game somehow. And then and the other pitch that I did was more of a, of a generic. I wasn't sure exactly whether we had to strictly follow the, the movie or not. So I'm like, well, just in case it's, you know, kind of one of these edge cases, because that sometimes happens too. I pitched uh, an idea about a space station that the alien could get loose in. And so it was a modular set of tiles. And so you would build the space station as you're exploring it. And then the alien was kind of hiding around. And, and, and in the description of that game, I included this one line that said, and the alien is driven by the jump scare deck. And so when I got the message back from Ravensburger, they're like, ooh, what is a jump scare deck? And then I was like, uh-oh, now I need to figure out what a jump scare deck is. <laughs> so so, so they said, well, we like the idea of it uh, being based on the film. That's what we, but we want you to include this idea of this jump scare deck. And I'm like, okay. So so the way that I essentially work with, with a producer or, or a publisher is, you know, after the initial pitch, which is usually a one page document, then I go and make like a PowerPoint that's maybe six to eight uh, pages long. And I, I take pieces of other games that I own and I mock up kind of like, this is kind of like what I see the game being like. And I take photos and, and so I, I'm using like little plastic astronauts that I have laying around and I have an alien figure from some, I don't even remember if it was, if it was the alien, I, I might've even grabbed an alien monster from some other board game. And I, and I, you know, kind of drew up a, a map of how I thought and printed up some placeholder cards to show how the jump scare deck would work and other things. And then I pitched that to Ravensburger and said, all right, this is kind of what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? And then they were like, we love it. Let's make this game. And so the the time from when they were like, all right, let's go. It, it literally was like four months. It was super fast. And it, this was right at the start of lockdown. So fortunately, I have a wife and two kids who don't get too sick of playing board games. They, they sometimes do, but but they were they realized that this was important to me. And, and you know, and and it was going to be uh, we wanted to make sure that was the best game it was. So we play tested the heck out of it. And then sent off files to a Ravensburger, who then they play tested the heck out of it. And we kind of would go back and forth on little things here and there. But to be honest, the process was very smooth. I there was real very few things that were like had to be changed. I think the spirit of the game that I initially pitched is still in the final product. Very cool. I like this jump scare deck idea. So they're actually now little tokens. And uh, the way they work is as you enter a room, if there's a token in there, you have to flip it first. And uh, most of the time it's empty, but sometimes it can be Jonesy who startles you. And that <laughs> if you get if you get too much fear, it's called morale in the game, but I always still think of it as fear. But essentially he'll scare you. That's you get a little bit of a jump scare. 
Um, but it also could be the alien, which then moves the alien miniature to the space you're at. And then you have to flee because the game itself doesn't have player elimination. And we wanted to do that because playing a game and then getting kicked out of it just sucks. And so we're like, all right, well, is there a way we can still have everybody play and it not be, you know, I mean, the irony is, of course, the alien is like 10 little Indians, right? It's a, it's, you know, they're, they're, you know, the seven characters and they're all pretty much getting knocked off one by one. But we, we wanted to capture that feel, but without losing, having the players have to drop out of the game or even removing the characters from the game. Cause it's a, it's a cooperative game. I, I kind of think of it as like, if the crew of the Nostromo had actually kept their wits about them a little bit better, then this is what might have happened. And the game represents that. In terms of, okay, so you have a design or the idea for the architecture of a game. What is the design like? Because, of course, with Alien, but all games, the visuals are a big thing. What's yeah, the next yeah. step? So after I do that pitch and then after I do that kind of deeper dive, then I build a prototype. And so I, 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 you know, like I said, I pull pieces from different things and I, and for a while, like things kind of come and go in the design. So for example, early on, I was playing with the idea of using a die to move the alien around the ship and you would roll the dice and that would kind of determine the the place that the alien would head towards. And it ended up just being a little too random for my taste. And, but we were even playing with the idea of like, well, you know, it was a, I think it was a 12 sided die. And we were playing with the idea of like, well, maybe we could make the die look like the egg, you know? So you're you're rolling the egg, you know? And, uh, and you know, that'd be fun. But in the end, we were like, well, we really don't need the die. It doesn't really help the game. And this other system with the tokens is working a lot better. Let's just stick with that. So, so you know, it's this game design is an iterative process in that you want to, you want to come up with as many ideas as you can. You want to fail those ideas as quickly as possible so you can jettison them out of the game design and move on to paying more attention to what is working and making that the heart of the gameplay. So, you know, the, the heart of the game is this tension that the alien is out there and he's stalking you and you're trying to rush around to craft items to kind of help you either fend it off or to get things ready to get the heck out of there. And, uh, and, and it's this push and pull of, you know, do I risk going to this location when I know the alien is nearby or he could even just pop up out of nowhere, you know, out of a vent or something and 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 get me. So uh, that, of course, you know, it's a lot of it is and it helps with an, having an IP, particularly one as as strong as alien in that, you know, what your goal is. Your goal is you're trying to recreate what alien is. And so it's you know, it's about tension. It's about people trying to work together in really bad odds. It's the odds being stacked against them. You know, it's this race against time. We have the the uh, self destruct as a mechanism in the game. So oh, cool. It, it, yeah. Awesome. So the That's so cool. the ship is going to blow up at certain in certain situations. And then we even have Ash in there. Now he's not a playable character, but he's there to complicate the game, uh, just like he does in the movie. Right? He's working against the the characters and and messing things up for them. And so our Ash in the game does the same thing. But we, we've made him kind of an advanced mode, so that way you can try it without him first. And then once you add him in, now he adds this extra layer of, of complication to the game. 
That is super cool. I love those mechanics. I have a, a mechanics-related question, actually. In preparing for this interview, I've been tabletop gaming even more than usual with my cousins. We have like a regular meetup where we get together, and I've been taking notes on napkins of things as we're playing that I'm noticing, <laughs> and that we're the three of us are sort of talking about, you know, wanting to ask you about. So, you know, we're all big video game people as well. Many people who listen to this podcast are. Something with video games that I've always noticed, and this is something that you're also positioned well to speak to, is that you could you can better control the unknown variables in a video game because of the way things are laid out, because of the way things are, you know, because of level design, because of things like having, you know, even if you're in an open world game, there are a lot of variables you have some control over, and you can funnel players on a more linear trajectory more easily. When you're playing a tabletop game, I, to me, as somebody who's never designed one of these things, I feel like there's a lot of unknown variables that you're playing with that you kind of can't control for, especially if it's like an asymmetrical game or if it's a game where you're teaming up with people. You know, we find creative ways to get around a lot of strange things that arise. And yet, with really good games, like an example that, you know, recently I've been thinking of this with is Zombicide. I don't know if you've played those games before. Um, so like with, with Zombicide, for example, you know, you can think that you're like doing great and then and then you'll spawn an abomination out of nowhere and you are just f- right and the rest of the game is just you're just trying to survive as much as you can and you know that there's no way out with a lot of great games like this and arkham horror is another example of this you get funneled into this sense of complacency almost after a while where you feel like you kind of got it and you're going to be okay and then something will happen and you'll be in this choke point and it feels like the game designer has thought of that and they're funneling you funneling you toward these experiences with your friends right where you are f- together and you got to figure out a way to get through it. So what I'm curious about, this is a super long-winded way of getting around to my question, is when you're designing especially a board game like this, how do you create moments like that where everything changes on a dime and it feels like, you know, you get your adrenaline going like that? How does right. that happen? Well, everything, you know, whether it's in video games or in tabletop gaming, everything stems from what the players are doing. So when you have a good grasp of the types of actions that the players can do, then you start messing with the the predictability of those actions happening. So for example, in Alien, the characters can go around and craft items to help them. They can craft an electric prod or incinerator or, or even a flashlight or even a cat carrier so they can capture Jonesy and have him not scare them anymore. However, Ash, he goes around and eat, you know, not literally, but he he gets rid of the the gears that you use in the game to craft things. So now you've I've introduced this element to, of play to complicate a thing that the player can normally do and go, well, wait a second. I, you know, I need for uh, gear to craft an incinerator and and I just cannot get them because Ash keeps eating you know all the all the gears up right so there are other there are other mechanisms though that then are created in the game to help enable the player because because ultimately a good game designer is rooting for the player we want the player to win but we don't want it to be easy you have to earn that win and so we will complicate things to the point where it is challenging but not difficult. And there's a big difference between that. Like, have you ever played a game where you're like, this is just too difficult. I can't play it. I, I can't get the rhythm right. I can't, you know, I don't, the the rule, you know, I'm just not in a position where I can win anymore. And, and as a game designer, we, I just, I definitely want to avoid those. I don't want the player to ever get to a point where they're just like, I can't play this game anymore. I'm going to quit. Uh, so instead I've got to figure out like, well, how can I have them win, but it's got to be tough to win. 
And so that's the that's the real challenge is thinking about the things the player can do. And then how do you make those things extra, you know, challenging, extra hard, complicated without it being too complicated? Because it is possible to overly complicate things as well. And it's it's you know, there's a sweet spot, right? It's like when you're playing a video game and you you're in that flow state, as they call it, and you're you're really into it and you look up and you're like, oh, my gosh, now it's you know one in the morning. I didn't realize I've been playing this long. Well, you're you're trying to do a bit of that with board games, but board games, it's a little harder because video games have a lot like you can control a lot of the player's input, like you can tr- control not only what they're looking at or maybe how they're moving around, but also what they're hearing and, and you know, the the mood and music and cinematics and all, you know, it's a very it can be a very passive experience but in that passive experience that's when you get immersion right that's where I mean why movies are so immersive is you just sit in the chair you you just let yourself go right but in board games it's a lot more challenging because you have to read rules you have to read cards you have to kind of mind things there's a lot of you know keeping track of things particularly in modern type board games that you have to do and so it it's it's a lot more challenging for us board game designers to try to capture that immersion. So if we manage to pull it off, then it's, you know, we're like, that's amazing. You know, we, we, it worked, you know, or I, I'm, I'm, I've watched people play alien now and get really into it. And that's, you know, I, I, that's makes me, gives me the most joy because I feel like they're forgetting about the mechanisms. They're forgetting about the action of playing the game and they're getting into the story. They're getting into the, the mood of the game and that's where they're having the fun. In terms of pacing, though, just as a little follow-up question to that, I feel like with great games, there's this curve, right? There's like a, obviously there's a learning curve element to it where you're kind of getting the rule set. You know, if you have somebody who knows the game really well, they're kind of explaining it, or you're playing a tutorial, you get through the first playthrough of it and you're like, okay, now we can kind of strategize and figure out how to do it. And then you get that sort of, that confidence that starts to wither away because the game starts to force you to have to adapt, right? How do you how do you lay the game out so that it will grow with the player's skill level and knowledge level and yet still be winnable also within a time frame? Because these games, you know, they're all the right length to play in an evening with friends. How do you I, I realize this is probably beyond the scope of what we can address in a podcast episode because this is the sort of thing you go to school for. But how, just in, in a you know quick enough way, how do you kind of manage that stuff? Well, I, I always start every game with kind of a guesstimate to how long I think it will take. And so that that I, I always say that it you should think outside the box, but you should work inside a box. And so the time limit gives you a box. And mass market games, particularly ones like Alien, Fate of the Nostromo, nobody wants to play a two-hour family game. It's just too long, right? Like imagine those games of Monopoly that you've played that have just gone right. on forever. And and nobody's happy at the end of that, you know. So there's a very definitive time limit that a game like that should take. And in the case of Alien, it's about 60 minutes. So every game, every game that I've played of it has never been longer than 60 minutes. So again, I'm like, I'm pretty happy with that. So so then when you're playing the game, you're thinking about, all right, how many actions can the player do? How long does it take for them to do something? Barring things like, you know, you have those players that suffer what we call analysis paralysis, 
where they're like, you know, oh, man, I have so many choices. I don't know what to do. Or they're, you know, very heavily weighing the consequences of their actions. So so by cutting down, giving the players meaningful choices, but not too many. So that's going to cut down on AP. And then thinking about, all right, what how many turns are players getting to do things? And so usually what I do is I go, all right, I, I kind of feels like I want the players to do X number of ter- have X number of turns over the course of the game. And then I think about, you know, often I'll think of it in the terms of a three act structure, like a traditional story where the first act is them kind of getting their sea legs and figuring out how to how to play the game. And then the middle part is the the meat of the action. And then the thing that I've been doing more and more in my game designs, particularly Alien is kind of the first one that's proved out this this theory. And, and it's not new. It's, I'm not a genius for for coming up with this, but I've been building in finales into my gameplay. So Alien has a, a big car. There's there's little objectives that you have to do over the course of the game. But then once you get all those done, then there's one bigger card that you flip over and it has a variety of objectives on it, but it also leads to a conclusion. And that conclusion is either you do this or you die. And and of course, this ramps up the tension. It's got this nice dramatic reveal where you're flipping over the card and seeing what it is. And it feels like the end of a story because now it's we've got to get off the ship before it blows up, or we have to get enough gear loaded into the Narcissus so we can get out of here, just like in the movie. Or we have to try, you know, drive the alien to an airlock where we can force it out of the airlock. Like they, like Dallas suggests they do earlier in the film. And, and that was the other fun thing for me designing alien was, you know, because I was familiar with the film and I, and I watched it probably a half dozen times while I was working on the game design I literally tried to mine every bit of dialogue to have it mean something in the game. There's there's a lot of stuff that kind of got left on the on the floor, but there's a lot of quote, you know, there's the 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 objectives and the finales all are based on quotes from the film and and a lot of the gameplay like the way the characters act are very much, you know, inspired by and trying to capture the feel of how these characters would act. Because, you know, that's what the alien fan wants. That's what I want as an alien fan. I want to play a game and have it be chock full of references and images and things like that. So I go, wow, that's just like this scene in the movie. That's just like, you know, so I feel like I'm playing the movie. So I I want to circle back to something that you mentioned a a little bit ago, which is that there are things left on the cutting room floor. Those of us who enjoy playing games know we also enjoy expansions to those games. Is there any chance of that happening with this down the road? Are there any plans at Ravensburger to kind of continue fueling this original game set or is this kind of this is it? Well, if Ravensburger came back to me and said, hey, this game's a huge hit and we want to make a expansion or a sequel, I'd be absolutely. Let's do it. But as of now, this is what you, what you see is what you get. August 1st. Yeah, as, far, as of the day before it is released. Yeah, right <laughs> now, this is the this is the game. OK, cool. So in terms of the release schedule. And I know you're talking about like a four month turnaround when they asked for ideas and to the release. Was it, was anything like pushed up or because of the pandemic or is it all, did it all release on schedule and everything was timed well? Yeah. I, we, the only thing that happened was we had a little bit of a premature release at Target where it was, the game was actually available to a few people. So it got into the hands of some fans ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But the but the release date has always been August first, and that's when it comes out. And and so I'm I I myself am looking forward to going to Target tomorrow. And it, for me, it'll be the first time I have a game on a on a big box store shelf. So I'm looking forward to 
to seeing it and and you know it's it's it it's uh it's a big moment for a game designer to have their game on you know target or walmart you know uh shelf you know it's it it means that it's reaching an audience so much larger than you know i, I mean nothing against mom and pop game stores i love them i support them and they will be carrying my game as well but the numbers that those stores buy are, you know, of a magnitude so much larger than the others, all the other stores combined. And so it's, you know, in terms of of just exposure, it just means so many more people are going to be buying and playing this game. And it also means that it's it's an easy thing to pick up for your family to play and not be stressed about losing parts or anything. You know, it's at a good price point where I think people can afford to get a couple if if they're able and, you know, maybe have one to bang around with the kids or the nephews or something and, you know, one to one to keep. Well, it does have a really lovely set of miniatures that were sculpted by my friend Brian Dugas. And uh, so even if you want a little a collection of the crew and the big chap on your desk, uh, that that alone, I think, is worth the price of admission. I can't help but think that or dream that a game set up this way, designed this way, playing it as a video game would be awesome, too, where you're on the Sturbo and you got to get off the ship. And well, I mean, that game already that, exists. That's Alien Isolation, right? Uh, That's sort a, of, but it's not as it's not as focused as your game. I, I love the focus of it. I love that this. It's a little bit simpler. I think it would make a fascinating right. video game. But I'm well, also but not a gamer, games, so. <laughs> well, video games have. There's an expectation that games last a certain amount of time, particularly AAA titles. And so, you know, when you buy, you know, Alien Isolation or, or any video game, you expect to get, you know, X hours. And X usually is anywhere from 6 to 8 to 12 to 20 to 100 hours, right? Board games are, you know, the, the real value proposition in board games is that you can quickly go back and play it again. So it's so the, the ask of the, of the audience is very different. Now there are video games that are, you know, very fast and, and, you know, are quick to play and, you know, things that you can download on XBLA or, or, you know, the, the Nintendo store or whatever, but, but, you know, unless they want to do a digital representation of this game, when that, you know, that happens too, right. There are digital versions of, you know, Catan and, and uh, I don't know, you know, I'm sure all the big titles have some sort of digital version of them. And, and, you know, it's it's just up to Ravensburger to decide whether they want to make a digital version of that or not. So <laughs> it's not outside of the realm of possibility. It's just really up to the desire of the publisher. Speaking of Alien Isolation, we share a mutual friend who was was kind enough to connect us with you, George Collins from Alcon Interactive, yeah. president. Awesome guy. We, 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 we just recently met him because he was on our show for the first time, but we already feel like we've known him forever because he's such a great, great dude. He speaks very highly of you. I, I like to think that maybe you might have been the other part of the pincer maneuver that got him to play Alien Isolation because he was like, you know what? Ever since I came on your show, I've been thinking about playing this game now more and, you know, I feel like now I'm going to do it. And somebody else just suggested it to me too. And I'm like, now the time so i think as we record this he's in the middle of a playthrough of isolation for the first time which is great all right so a was it you that was also trying to get him to play it and b what's your background with isolation you, you've, you've played it i'm assuming what do you think of that game from a design standpoint well i mean i have it right here i i've played it i've played the i particularly got it for the nostromo extra material yeah because again like i said i'm a you know a huge original film fan and i wanted to really just run around that environment, you know, just being in that, that, you know, Ron Cobb designed ship and, and, you know, 
there's just something really cool about it, right? The visuals are just amazing in that in that movie. And so I wanted to experience that and and seeing that they had gotten the likeness rights to the actors. And, you know, it just it was a really great production. And the the game itself, like the the regular game, right, is also really good. And it's scary. And and I like horror video games. And I was interested to see what they were doing. I played I've probably played every alien themed video game that's out there, you know, everything and even ones that are like unlicensed. Right. Like like I remember playing games like Xenophobe which is, uh, you know, an unlicensed arcade game, right? But it's very yeah. similar to Alien. Which has um, a split screen, right? Yeah, it's got, yeah, a, it's it's got a, split a horizontal screen. split screen, it's, which is crazy. It's got chest yeah. bursters. It's got eggs. Yeah. It's got, you know, aliens. Now, let me ask you a question, because I don't call the alien an, a xenomorph. I just call it an alien. Do you guys prescribe to that or not? Oh, this is an eternal, eternal arguing point. <laughs> you call it XX121. You can call it a, a xenomorphic creature. You know, I, I call okay. it the alien. I do call it xenomorph sometimes, though, because that's from a cultural shorthand standpoint. That's what everybody knows it as. But you're sure, right. Yeah. It is it is something worth discussing. You know, yeah, I, some... I only I only call them either alien or the big chap. Those are the, the two things I call. Them. Yeah, there are some people in fandom who like freak out when you say xenomorph that's not what that word means it's not what you call them i call like patrick I, i'll call it a xenomorph i'll call it an alien oftentimes in within fandom context i'll use the term xenomorph so people know exactly what i'm talking about right um so they're thinking so they don't trans transpose those words because oftentimes right. alien the movie or the xenomorph what are you talking about so right right so here's the other question then and that this is what do you guys think do you feel that the the you know the alien the one that we know of as alien do you think that that is the only alien that humans had discovered or do you think that there were other alien life forms that because you know in in aliens they say you know hey this is another bug hunt and but do you think that like do you think there's a huge difference between what they discovered on LV426 versus uh, or what? Four two one, four two six. Always four two six. Yeah, you're good. Four two six. Yeah. Or, or you know, like, like for me, I kind of feel like it's. Did you guys ever read Starship Troopers? The Heinlein book, the it. original. Yeah, yeah, the Heinlein book. Yeah. I, I have it, but I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's fantastic. I, yeah. It's another. That's another sci-fi thing I visit every year. Is is reread that book. But in that in that book, they you know the humans have met other alien life forms, but they're usually like kind of wimpy. Like they call them, I think they call them greenies or something. And they, in my mind, they're kind of like, I almost picture them as like wimpy Grinches. You know, they're like furry little wimpy people. But then they encounter the bugs and the bugs are like horrible and murderous and all that. Right. So do you think that there are other aliens like the greenies in the alien universe? And then the alien that we know and love is the first hostile that they've encountered. Well, I think the events of Prometheus give some some indication into into previously encountered alien species but in, in terms of non xenomorph adjacent sort of alien species or or species that are just sort of encountered you know like no man's sky kind of aliens to me the answer is yes and i think the the best indication of that is in the second film exactly the line you're referencing with you know not another bug hunt and you know the fact that the you know the dropship says you know, we endanger species and things like that. I, it's, it seems like that's an ongoing trope in that universe. 
But it's interesting that we don't get any any definitive answers on that, you know, and into what those organisms look like, how intelligent they are, what kind of culture has sprung up around, you know, the, you know, zoology of them or anything. We just get these little glimpses into it by seeing the colonial marines and knowing that they have, you know, a mission. But to me, Prometheus is the indication that, that, you know, that that was sort of the start of this idea that there's extraterrestrial life that has some degree of intelligence to it. However, however, there's a couple of things dropped in aliens where they're at the the breakfast table or the lunch table or whatever and they use Arcturian, the term Arcturian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right yeah. that's so, true and and that idea was expanded upon in a comic where Arcturians are a little bit humanoid but they're also non-gendered sort of i don't know but then you have fire team which is coming out in september i think uh, and end of august still august 24th that, right and you get we get to finally see the bug hunt and they are mm. creatures that we've they're showing photos of that are based off Giger designs that are pretty cool looking, but they're Careful more looking. bug-like. So I feel like it's the first time we will get to see an iteration of what the Marines were talking about when they said right. bug hunt. Right. Although it doesn't it it does not cover the fact that aliens well i had already encountered predators and predators take place in the past we don't even talk from, about those yeah, so, <laughs> they don't it's so complicated yeah it's i so know, complicated I know. so quick and and, and the fact that in the dark horse comics you know we see tons of evidence of other species being farmed being raised for you know as cattle for example right. even in the kenner yeah, toys yeah. that came out in the 90s you know of, of course they were colonizing these organisms but also you get to see these organisms interacting with their own environments in the in the dropship in the kenner comic books is like ferrying yep. the marines around to different little planets where there's you know giant scorpions for example so yeah it, it's one of those things where like i think it depends kind of how how wide you expand the bubble of what's canon and what's not canon but i think no matter what it's such a fascinating thing to think about yeah, yeah. It, it it's almost I think it almost is better to keep your sanity if you think of each of the comics and books and movies as their own distinct things and and that are just kind of flavored by everything else, right? Like right. I I almost I almost don't connect, you know, I mean, for my own reasons, I I kind of, you know, I'm I'm the camp that I would rather the I would rather Alien 3 have started a different way. And so, you know, I, in my head, it's kind of like this, almost like this parallel universe to the, to the Ripley story. And I think for a lot of people, it probably is. We happen to be huge Alien 3 fans, but I, I think it's, it's, it's a movie that's still contentious. It's about to hit 35 years old too, which is yeah. 30 years pretty, old, 30 years old. Sorry. <laughs> Aliens was just turned 35. Although I do prefer the, the director's cut, which I was actually the first way I saw it. I saw it in a test screening and, uh, and I saw the. The, the whole dragon sequence as part of the the version I saw. And then when I went to see it in theatrical on release, I'm like, they cut out the best part of the movie. That whole that whole chase sequence was the best part, in my opinion. Yeah, that is a fasc- fascinating film. Well, <laughs> what's even film. what's even more fascinating is I in doing research for this game. I found out that that scene was intended for the original alien. Yeah, right. Yeah. And do you have Simonson's, the comic that, that he wrote that came out with the original film? You see some glimpses of that in there yep. too. And see, yeah, yeah. And is, in the Alan cool. Dean Foster book and, and, and things like book, that. Who also yeah. was on our show recently. You, oh, awesome. <laughs> just this last, just this last year. I want to be respectful of your time because I know it's a weekend. I know you have something to, to drive off to. So I want to pull us around to a close out here. But before, before we do, I, I want to say there, there have been, there's a precedent for alien board games, you know, obviously in, in in this universe so i want to get an idea of, of what you've played you know recently there was the wonder dice game that came out 
There's also, of course, the pen and paper RPG that was that was, you know, Andrew Gaska, who's a good friend of ours, who's been on the show, was was partly responsible for. Great game. Just had an expansion come out for Colonial Marines. And there's also, you know, back from the original film that was released, there was a board game that was put out that's extremely enjoyable. And my personal favorite, although, you know, I'm willing to cede my favorite to Fate of the Nostromo if it's good, you know, I'm, I'm hoping. My personal favorite is the Operation Aliens board game that came out in 1992, <laughs> which is freaking crazy. And my kids absolutely adore that game. And it has like a reverse XP system. It has like a life counter on it. It has all these cool mechanics. And it's wonderful because it's wrapped up in this strange place where, you know, the Operation Aliens license was only out for a short period of time. And they used it a lot and then it was kind of vanished. So that's a game that I recommend. Long story short, do you have you played any of these other games before? And did they have any influence on this at all? Or is- there were... There were some games that influenced it, but to be honest, none of them were really alien games. I Most of the games that I've played were ones that feel more like aliens. So mm-hmm. I grew up playing Space Hulk. There's a bunch of other, you know, kind of like alien adjacent board games that are really good that are out that I've played and enjoyed. But and I remember playing the the 1979 one, you know, the the movers, you know, you're kind of moving the red and the blue and the yellow alien around, you know, it's like, wait, isn't there? Isn't there only supposed to be one alien in this movie? <laughs> so, I mean, that for me, that was one of the big honors was being technically the second official game based on the original movie. The first being the Kenner and then the second one being this one, because everything else is either the aliens, you know, universe or aliens. You know, there's a big slew of, uh, you know, like Gale Force 9 has put out a bunch of really good, you know, uh, like another glorious day in the core and, and yeah. you know, games like that. Right. So I, I wouldn't say that they influenced really me. And, and to be honest, I tried to not let them color my opinion anyway, because you don't want to make something and then, you know, it comes out and people go, oh, this is just like this other game that came out, right? You're trying to trying to make something unique uh, for the experience for the player to enjoy. So I, I, and to be honest, I haven't played too many of the recent ones. I haven't played the RPG game. I don't, unfortunately, I don't these days get to play too many RPGs. I've got you know, family and and I'm kind of more busy making games and playing them. At least I'm playing my own games, but and playing, you know, other games when I can, but but I don't RPGs take up a lot of time, you know, as much they're as I love playing. Yeah, there's, there's a lot yeah, you yeah, to learn from. Yeah. 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 So so unfortunately my my answer is no. <laughs> so as we close this, can we can you let our listeners know where like what are you working on next and where we they can find you? Or right. find- well, I mean, you can find me on social medias like Twitter and Instagram, where I go under, go under the name Mighty Bedbug, I'm, and I'm on Facebook, and I haunt various board game design groups on Facebook. I have like I have a, a couple of podcasts that I do. One is called Ludology, uh, and that is all about tabletop game design, and uh, you can just put in Ludology podcast. And then I do another one with my daughter that is a after show based on the TV show The Magicians. And it's called Fillery and Father. And so that also just put that in. As for as for projects, I have many board games in development, but most of them haven't been announced yet. Actually, all of them haven't been announced yet. So I think we're going to be announcing one in September. So if you follow my socials, you'll you'll hear about it then. But but if you want to check out my past works, I've written a couple of books on game design. One is called Level Up, The Guide to Great Video Game Design. The other is Swipe This, the Guide to Great Touchscreen Game Design. I've given talks. My famous one is about Disneyland. It's called Everything I Learned About Level Design. 
I learned from Disneyland. You can find there's a couple of versions of that online. And that ties into that level up book. And then you can just look up Scott Rogers, game designer. Oh, I was in a movie, uh, a movie called Game Master that came out last year. And it talks about me designing another one of my games that's called Ray Guns and Rocket Ships, which is another sci-fi miniatures based game that I think you can still buy on Amazon. I don't know. It might be out of print now. I'm not sure. But anyway, you know, I'm, I'm all over the place. Just put in Scott Rogers game design. You'll probably find more than you probably ever wanted to find. <laughs> That's great. Well, we're glad you're keeping busy because it all sounds amazing. And uh, this has been a really illuminating conversation. Thank you for giving me also an excuse to schedule even more board game nights with my cousins because you yeah. are partly responsible for that. And, and we're going to keep it up now every every month at infinitum. We're going to do a tabletop night. So you're partly behind Excellent. that. Thank you very much, Mr. Rogers. For Thanks so much for coming, thanks for on, coming the on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Keep playing games, guys. And and, you know, watch out for face huggers. <laughs> All right, you too. <laughs> Stay frosty, my friend. Bye. All right. Take care. Bye. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.